In Texas, people that run for public office must acknowledge the supreme being. If not, they could be subject to religious tests. No atheists allowed. In California, a frog that dies during a frog jumping contest cannot be eaten, according to law. In Idaho, cannibalism is strictly prohibited except under, quote, life-threatening conditions as the only apparent means of survival. In Kentucky, every legislator, public officer, and lawyer must take an oath stating that they have never fought a duel with deadly weapons. In Massachusetts, playing or singing only part of the national anthem or remixing it as a dance music is punishable by a fine of not more than $100. In Mississippi, using profanity in public could land a person in jail for up to 30 days. Uh, in New Jersey, it's illegal to wear a bulletproof vest while carrying out a grave criminal act. And here in Oregon, leaving a container of urine or fecal matter on the side of the road is against the law. It's a misdemeanor. And you're not allowed to throw it from a vehicle either. You could get a ticket. So are these the dumbest laws you've ever come across? I would agree. Uh, they're certainly weird, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them uh, throughout the books in the states across the country, especially the fact that the state has been in the, in the business of making laws for hundreds of years. I only mention these because given enough time and under enough circumstances, people, humans, will do a lot of things that the rest of us may find a little bizarre. But, you know, when it's codified into law, that's, to me, even weirder. Uh, often, uh, doing something just for the sake of doing something isn't necessarily a good move. In many cases, it makes more sense to not act, to stop and ponder and decide if you shouldn't even act or do anything at all. You know, I often work with clients that cannot make up their mind, and I found that you can conjole them, urge them, push them, but if they're indecisive, they'll remain indecisive. So it's usually because of something going on on their end that you just don't understand. So I think it helps to understand what's really going on, although it's not always easy to learn that information. Hi there, this is Tim Patterson, Trade Show Guy, and this is the Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee for August 13th, 2018. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about me and my company, Trade Show Guy Exhibits, you can do that online at tradeshowguyblog.com or tradeshowguyexhibits.com. And if you need a new exhibit, but you don't know what you're getting into with the whole process, uh, we've got a kit put together. Just go to tradeshowexhibitbuyerskit.com and download the free kit there. On today's episode, I want to share a fun conversation I had with Bill Lampton, PhD. We chatted about communication in the workplace and public speaking. Lots of great things to learn with Bill. And this is how that conversation went. And I want to welcome to Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee this morning, uh, Bill Lampton, PhD, known as the Biz Communication Guy. Good morning, Bill. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Good morning, Tim. I was quite excited when I got your invitation to do that. Thanks for hosting me. Indeed, very, very, very much. Uh, so I've long believed that communication is really the key to everything. In fact, I think I mentioned in an email to you that for a short time I had a a company called Communication Steroids. A friend of mine and I thought, you know, adding muscle to your message was a way to do it. We did public speaking training and a few other things. But you obviously have gotten deeper into that and there's a lot more to it, but communication really is a key. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, and most of the time when I'm giving a speech or giving a seminar, I quote Daniel Webster who said, if I were to lose all of my possessions except one, I would save the power of communication far by it. I would soon regain all the rest. That's probably true, yeah. But the power of communication is 
probably much more powerful than, than a lot of us realize. Uh, tell me about, uh, are, are you, you're, you, uh, you don't have a company or maybe you are the company and you work with clients as a coach. What exactly do you do? How does that work from your end? There are several services that I offer, Tim. One is that I've done what you did for a while, and that is I do a good bit of presentation skills coaching where there are executives, are there people on the way to becoming executives who recognize that having great ideas in business is part of it, but you have to persuade others and get them on your team, and you usually do that through your verbal presentations. So I've had a great time helping executives. I, I know from Gillette, Duracell, Procter & Gamble, and some others. And then just some people who are, as we might say, on the way up. I use <laughs> video. I have a 20-question questionnaire I go, with them, go through with them in the training. And I'm in my coaching, uh, I'm not someone who gives criticism as much as I give encouragement. I try to find what's right and build on that. So speech coaching has been something that I've loved doing. I also enjoy working with organizations to help them improve their communication. And very quickly, there are three questions I usually ask, and I like to interview as many of the employees as I can. Mm -hmm. First question is, what's wrong with communication in your organization, and these are confidential, anonymous interviews. And then the second one is what's right with communication to get them on a positive track. And to me, the most important question is, what would you change in the organization right. to make communication stronger here? Well, you mentioned, uh, I was looking on your website, you were in the management world for a couple of decades, which uh, gave you a good look at what problems in communication are there. So are there communication, communication problems that are really unfixable because there's such a toxic workplace? Have you run across that? Or is most, uh, most of the workplaces you run into out there just have some things that need some tweaks or overhauls? I would say they're fixable if the uh, people are open to yeah. <laughs> fix. For example, if you've got a, a, a stereotyped micromanager, and I suffered one, under one of two of those, yeah. uh, that's not very easy to fix because in the first place, they don't see anything wrong. They, they think that's... Right. Uh, the, the way it ought to be. They've got the title, they've got the power, they've got your salary in their hand, and so they can tell everybody what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and check up on them to see if they are doing it. Exactly. So uh, when you went through all of that with uh, the management, what kind of things did you learn that decide, help you decide, you know, I can, I can coach at this, I can be good at this, I can help people fix these things? How did you recognize that within yourself? I looked at some of my own problems, uh, Tim. I, I looked at some of the things that I had done over a 20-year span, which I, I really had to admit were hurting my career and were hurting the organization. I don't think I was a very good listener. Oh, I was going to bring that up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I was one who was open to recommendations and uh, criticism, I doubt that I was a very good team player. And it was really only after I started working with organizations as a consultant that I thought, well, I, I hurt myself during those situations, but I learned enough from it that I can keep other people, my clients, 
from committing those same errors. And so one of my major keys in working with organizations is teaching them listening skills, how to get along with difficult people, how to get along with those you have personality clashes with, how our styles differ, and we must adjust to everybody's style instead of thinking they all will adopt our style of communication. Well, you mentioned listening skills, and I think that probably the biggest challenge a lot of us have, whether it's in business or in, in personal relationships, is that when you're in kind of a, a there's tension of some sort, uh, and you're trying to listen, but you're also in your mind you're going, okay, what am I going to respond to? I, I, you're working on the response versus actually hearing what they're saying. I'm, I'm sure you run across that. How do you deal with that? Well, Stephen Covey said that so well, and. His book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Chapter 5, which he said, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And most of us say, no, wait a minute. Whoa. (laughs) Sounds easy, right? (laughs) Yeah, I want to be understood first. But you're exactly right, because Covey says on the second page of that chapter, most of us do not listen to respond. We listen waiting for our turn to speak. Yeah, we're trying to rebut before they've actually got their their statement out, and, and you're already working on that in your mind. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have when it comes to listening. And so I've, I've tried, I have to stop myself and I'm in one of those conversations to just say, okay, settle down, hear what they have to say. But that's really hard. That's very difficult. It's hard, and, and uh, long before Covey, uh, Dale Carnegie talked about this oh, a yeah. good bit. And one of the things I remember about Dale Carnegie along these lines, early in his career, a very prominent lady invited him to come to a party where there would be a lot of important people who could help Carnegie advance his career. At the party, he talked to a good number of people. He never made any statements of his own. He asked them about their job, their career, their family, their travels, their vacation, their hobbies, their aspirations. And the next day, the lady called him and said, oh, Mr. Carnegie, my phone has been ringing off the hook. People have been telling me what a great conversationalist you are. You know, I've heard that from another uh, gentleman uh, whose name slips my mind, but he had told a great story that he got in a conversation with somebody and he says, I didn't tell him a thing about myself. I just kept asking him questions. And at the end of the hour, the guy says, you're a great conversationalist. People love to talk about themselves, which is really interesting. And I guess that's one way to to break the ice is to ask questions of people. So you also talk about uh, uh, dealing with difficult people and malcontents. And what are some of the biggest communication problems that people face on a day-to-day basis in business, you think? To me, one of them, I would get back to communication styles, Tim, where many people don't recognize that other people are not bad people because they have a style that's different from yours. Now, my style, I'll give an example. My style is um, what in the DISC system would be the high I, the sort of ever- uh, happy, uh, the joke teller, the backslapper, and so on. I remember so well sitting one time in a meeting with a lady who was uh, a, a very high D, and she absolutely was dominant, and she w- wanted to think of nothing but work, and she had a little coffee cup there with a cute saying on one side of it. And so I, before the meeting started, I said to her, what does it say on the other side of that coffee cup, trying to get a little light talk going. And she said, 
I don't know what it says. <laughs> I was not going to change her. There was no, right. and she wasn't going to change me. Right. Once people recognize that and understand that there's nothing wrong with the way I am, there's nothing wrong with the way you are, what we need to do is find out what makes you click and you find out what makes me click and we make some adjustments and our conversation and our written communication and all of our interactions so that we're on your wavelength. Well, what, I want to cover one more area before we, we wrap this up, and that is uh, your, your coaching and your, and your training on presentations, public speaking. Let's talk about that a little bit. How do you uh, help someone out? What kind of situations do you find yourself in or do you find that those clients are in when they're trying to learn more about public speaking? Is it a quick fix or is it a few tips or is it more of a long-term thing? I'm just curious your approach on that. It depends on what they are interested in doing, Tim. For example, some people might call me and say, I've got a big speech coming up uh, five days from now. Let's, <laughs> let's work on that. Right. So that is a quick fix. And we spend three or four hours together. There are others who say, let's work together over a three-month period. And we work on all phases of communication. One of the uh, major challenges that many aspiring presenters come across is stage fright. And I oh, yeah. love to help people deal with stage fright. Oh, good. I, Let's get a couple of tips. <laughs> okay. In the, in the first place, I say to them, change your view of audiences. Most people have stage fright because they think audiences are so judgmental. They're so critical. You cannot possibly please them. And what I say to my speech coaching clients is, now, let's think about that. Audience is, audiences are not your critics. Audiences are your cheerleaders. Yeah. They want you to succeed as much as you want to succeed. Because when the speaker flops, it's just as uncomfortable for the audience. And then a, a second tip I, which I give is, let's not think of this as a performance. That's one of the problems that we talk about delivery so much. And I recommend, hey, Let's leave delivery to UPS, FedEx, and the post office. The rest of us, let's just have a conversation yeah. with our audience. Yeah, and that's what I learned. You know, I, I, spending all that time in, in radio, it was easy for me to speak into a microphone in a room with no one else in there. But when it came time to get up in front of people, it was, it was extraordinarily uh, daunting to me. And I think uh, in the mid-90s, I started uh, going to Toastmasters group. And over the years, you know, it, it, I, got, I got rid of that fear for the most part. It still gets the adrenaline going when I do get up in front of people, but I enjoy it. And I, and I know how to deal with it. And that's really the whole thing. You understand, you kind of get those ducks to walk in a row instead of flying all over the room uh, so that you feel better about it. And, and I think to your point, an audience does want you to succeed because if, if you succeed, they feel good about you. So. Well, one more point. I, I like to, and you hinted at it there, I like to say you don't get rid of your stage fright, you control it. I don't yeah. want to get rid of it. I want to be revved up when I'm speaking with a group. Every, every speaker should recognize, I like to use this comparison, you go to a football game, both teams come out of their end zones, and they're slapping each other on the back, and they're jumping around, and they're laughing and shouting. What if instead they went over their bench and sat down and yawned? 
Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want to watch a game like that, would you? No, you want to be pumped up and you want to be into it and, and whatever it takes for you to get to that point. But yes, I think uh, controlling the stage fright versus getting rid of it is, is really kind of the goal there. So, I like to say that uh, when a client comes to me for speech coaching, I'd rather have to tame a wild stallion than wake up a sleeping mute. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Uh, Bill, where can people find you uh, online? And you have a wonderful newsletter. Let's make sure to mention that because that's full of useful tips. How often does that come out? That comes out uh, usually weekly. And when I get an extra idea, I will send it out twice a week. Winning go. Words and Ways is the name of the newsletter. As you know, you can sign up for it on my website. And being the biz communication guy, as you mentioned at the outset, my website logically is biz, B-I-Z, bizcommunicationguy.com. Well, from uh, trade show guy to biz communication guy, guy to guy, here we go. Thanks, Bill, for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to chat with you today on Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee. Thank you so much, Tim. This was a privilege and a pleasure. I want to say thanks again to Bill Lampton for being a part of the show. His website, again, is bizcommunicationguy.com, or just look for a link in the show notes on tradeshowguyblog.com if you're not already there. He's got a great newsletter, too. I, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, check it out. Today's trade show tip has to do with communication. What a surprise, right? And organization. Often we don't communicate well because we don't have all the information we need, or if we have it, we are not organized well enough to get answers easily. I've always advocated that you cannot keep too many records. And once you have those records of all this trade show stuff you're doing, you need to keep them organized. Uh, not only in a way that you understand, but in a way where someone that comes after you could figure out all that stuff in short order instead of leaving it just in a pile in the middle of the room with nothing labeled like you do on a computer uh, sometimes when you, when you track things. So figure out your record keeping system that makes sense. All right. So uh, record keeping, I think, does a number of things for you. Number one, it allows you to know the past. What did you pay for something a year ago or two years ago or five? What did the booth look like back then? What products were you promoting or launching back then? Uh, number two, it shows trends. If you keep track of visitor counts, for example, you can tell if you're getting more visitors or less, or maybe it's staying the same year over year from show to show. And of course, it gives you a chance to show trends in the costs of things. Is it going up faster than inflation? Is it staying flat? Those types of things. Are you sending more people to the show? Number three, it gives you information to find out if it's worth it. If you have an accurate count of the cost of a trade show, you know, from the booth to the shipping to installation and dismantle to travel and logistics, if you have an accurate assessment of the amount of sales that come from the trade show, your ROI, uh, you can come up with a valid ROI and determine if that show is worth it to you. Number four, if you take a lot of pictures and archive those, it allows you and your team to easily access images of what the booth looked like and to much more easily assess what worked and what didn't in the booth design and interactions with visitors. One of the ways I share uh, albums of pictures online is just create an album online uh, through Google in their Photos app. And you can create albums, share a link. You can keep it private, share just the link and the photos. And they can all take a look at it whenever they want. So there's a lot of different ways you can organize things online. You can use Dropbox, uh, Google. There's a lot of others as well. I could go on, but the idea is that the more information you track, the more accurate your assessments will be. And likely the better your decision making will be, the more informed it will be. So be organized, keep good records, and communicate that information you find out with your team and management, and then you'll be on the right track.
All right. So this week's one good thing to close it out. I'm reading a book called Bond, The Last Highway. I'm a pretty big ACDC fan, maybe not the biggest ACDC fan, but this is the untold story of Bon Scott and ACDC's Back in Black. If you're familiar with ACDC, you know Back in Black was really their huge breakthrough album. It's always been said that that was a sort of a tribute to Bon because Bon died in February of 20, uh, excuse me, 1980, <laughs> 1980, a long time ago. And the album was written as a tribute to him. Well, there's a lot of evidence that says he wrote a lot of the songs on the album uh, and never got credit for them. Interesting book. I'm about a halfway through. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of ACDC lately, especially the early Bond stuff. Uh, his voice was was unique. I, th- I think as a rock and roll singer and the band that he was with, it was it was a time and it was it was a unique presentation and he was a great performer he had his problems he was a raging alcoholic a very creative guy very sweet guy from what i hear he had his moments of being not so sweet but the book is really really quite good jesse jesse fink has done a a terrific job and and uh i recommend it as my one good thing this week bon the last highway have yourself a great week catch you next time